Well, as we continue our sermon series that we've been in this year in the Gospel of John, uh, this week we are looking for the second week in a row at the story, this wonderful story in John chapter 11, uh, the miracle of Jesus' raising of Lazarus uh, from the dead. Last week we looked at his interactions with one of the grieving sisters, Martha. Remember that great promise of the Gospel, I am the resurrection and the life. I am the resurrection and the life. And so we're going to continue uh, today to see how he interacts with this family, this family that he loved, this family of his friends, Mary and Martha, and their brother Lazarus. And in this, uh, we hope that we're seeing not just how Jesus cared for his friends, his beloved, uh, back then and there, but also how he continues to care and love and protect and raise uh, his friends, his beloved, in the here and now. So if you would, if you're willing and able, please stand for the reading of God's word. Our reading today is from John chapter 11, verses 28 through 44. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, the teacher is here and is calling you. When she heard it, she rose quickly and went with him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, They followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to Jesus, when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said to him, and he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, See how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, He cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. It is absolutely true and it's given to us in love. You know, one of the, uh, one of the, Great and terrible uh, responsibilities of being a parent uh, to two young children, to being a dad, uh, is that my children assume a certain level of omniscience and omnipotence uh, about me. 
right? This is great because who doesn't want to feel like you can, you have all the answers to all of the questions and who doesn't want to feel like you're all powerful, um, except it's terrible because, of course, you know that it's, that it's not true. But my kids uh, do think that I know just about everything. The other day, uh, Houston asked me, we were talking about the Jags being in the playoffs. He was very excited. And he goes, Dad, what, what was the score of the last Jags playoff game? I don't know, that's been a long time. And, uh, my, you know, I've always been a big fan, but I don't, but, you know, I can kind of subtly Google, figure out what the score was. So that Google is your friend. But then he, later in the day, uh, Houston asked me, how heavy is Asia? <laughs> I, I don't know. Even Google doesn't know. That's a, that's, I don't know. They also, uh, so they think I know everything. They also tend to think uh, that I can fix everything because I'm the, the keeper in our house of the superglue uh, that can fix, fix almost anything in their lives, right? So if you run into a, a broken toy, take it to dad. Dad, can you fix it? Uh, if the, the Lego cars get broken and pieces fall, dad, can you fix it? If a toy, uh, toy remote control car gets in too bad of a wreck, dad, can you superglue the bumper back on? But over Christmas, we had a, an ornament uh, that fell and broke into hundreds, maybe thousands, of tiny little pieces. And still, these boys and their optimism said, let's take it to Dad. He can fix it. Dad, can you super glue this little bag of broken glass uh, back into a Christmas ornament? And I had to go, no, you know, I can't. There's, uh, there's some things that are broken uh, to the point that super glue can't fix them. Uh, there's things in our lives and, uh, that are broken to the point where I can't fix them. And so it's hard. It's, as a dad, you always want your kids to think that, they can, that you can fix anything in their lives. But this is, you know, welcome to the real world, right? Welcome to life. In life, uh, there are things that are broken beyond our ability to fix them easily. You know, we talked just in our, in our pastoral prayer about some of the, the difficulties and losses that we've gone through even as a church. Standing with, uh, with a couple around a baby and praying for him as he's got uh, wires and cords running all over him, in and out of his body. You want to, as a pastor, you want to be able to fix it. You want to be able to fix the baby. You want to be able to fix them and tell them everything's going to be okay. But, but you can't. When we grieve the loss of loved ones, you, there, there's losses that aren't just easily superglued back together. We get to places in our marriages, right, where you've got years upon years upon years of coldness and distant betrayal, uh, where you can't just fix it. It's, it, it's very difficult. Uh, and you can't just put all the pieces back together again. Amen. And this story is a story of incredible hope for those of us who, who are dealing with things and places in our lives that we know that we can't fix. Because here we see Jesus face-to-face uh, -face with the most unfixable of human problems, death itself, death and the wake of tragedy that comes with it. We see Jesus, who John has told us already up to this point, uh, that he was the light that was coming into the world, that in him was light, and that light was the life of men. So what happens when life itself comes to a funeral? When the power and vibrancy of life itself comes into the shadow of death? What happens there? This is the, the age-old you know, physics problem of what happens when an irresistible force meets an immovable object, right? Thus far in John's gospel, Jesus has shown himself to be somewhat an irresistible force of power, right? In the face of, of sickness, he brings healing. In the face of blindness, he brings sight. In the face of shame, he brings acceptance and healing. 
But now in the, against the immovable object, the one thing that every single human being that's ever lived has faced and found to be insurmountable, death itself. What happens when the irresistible force meets that immovable object of death? And that's what uh, we see in this story. So let's look and let's see the answer to maybe the question that, that Christians ask more than any other. Where is Jesus in the midst of our hurt? Where is God in the midst of our suffering? Well, let's see uh, where Jesus is. The first thing we see is that in the midst of our pain, Jesus is seeking us out. Jesus is looking for us and coming after us and seeking us out. Look, we saw last week, Jesus uh, begins to head towards Bethany, the home of Mary and Martha and their brother Lazarus. As he nears this town, Lazarus is already dead, and Martha, the sister, the grieving sister, runs out to Jesus to meet him. And even while she goes out to meet uh, their beloved Jesus, Mary stays back in the home by herself. It's evident that these two sisters are, are processing their grief in different ways. Right? Martha, as uh, is, is heartbroken as she is, still finds the strength to run to Jesus. They both, both of these sisters, bring the same uh, charge at Jesus. Jesus, if you had been here, if you hadn't taken so long, if you had been here, my brother may not have died. But Martha follows that up. After she says, if you had been here, she says, but even so, I know that whatever you ask the Father, he'll give. Mary doesn't say that. Mary just says, Jesus, if you had been here, he wouldn't have died. Period. End of sentence. Mary is on the verge of being lost in despair, being lost to unbelief. When she deals with Jesus, there's no evidence that she has any hope, that he has any power to do anything here. She's stuck in on herself in her sadness and in her grief. And yet Jesus comes. He sends messengers uh, to her. And they say to her, the teacher is here and he is calling for you. Mary, Jesus is here and he's looking for you. Jesus is here and he wonders where you are. He wants to see you. He wants to meet you. The teacher is here and he's looking for you. This is uh, a picture of pure grace. That even when we are not looking for Jesus, Jesus is looking for us. Even when we're stuck in unbelief, doubt, and despair, when we can't see hope, when we can't see him, when we don't have any reason to believe, Jesus comes looking for us. He's looking for us. He's looking for you. He comes for you before you go for him. That's what grace means, that the initiative is always with Jesus and that he's seeking you. He's seeking me. He's seeking us out. You know, one of the great temptations that comes on us when we're hurting, when we're suffering, is we start to turn inwards on ourselves and say, well, if only I believed more, if only I had more hope, if only I had stronger faith, if only I somehow was turning to Jesus more faithfully in the midst of this. But the comfort here in this passage is that the comfort doesn't come because of your faith. It doesn't come because of your hope. It doesn't come because you're uh, buoyant and able to bounce back out of your losses. It comes even in the midst of your despair, even when you find yourself unable to seek Jesus. He comes seeking you. He comes looking for you. He comes after you. 
And he comes to strengthen us and to call us. I love this little, uh, it's a tiny detail in the text. It's easy to overlook. The messengers come. They say, the teacher is here and he's calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. When she heard it, when she heard that Jesus was looking for her, she rose quickly. The word that's used for, for, for risen here is the same word that gets attached to the resurrection. It's the same word that gets attached to Jesus' resurrection. Just as in a few minutes, Lazarus is going to hear his name called by Jesus and have a major resurrection, we shouldn't miss this little resurrection. That from the midst of despair and bitterness and isolation, Mary experiences a type of resurrection. When she hears that he calls her by name, just as her brother will in a minute, she hears and she rises up. Something within her rises up when she hears Jesus call her name, when she hears that he's looking for her. And that, in just a chapter earlier, Jesus said what? He said, I know my own and my own know me. Right? They hear my voice. They hear me when I call their name. And they come to me. And so Mary, uh, there in the midst of her despair, there in the midst of her pain, rises and goes to Jesus. And when she meets with him, when she finally is face to face with this one who loves her and who loves her sister and loves her brother, we hear this uh, of Jesus, of how he reacts to her, that he was deeply moved and that he was troubled, that he was deeply moved and he was troubled. Where is Jesus in the midst of our pain and our suffering? He's seeking us out and then he meets us in the middle of it. He meets us in our suffering and he's not unaffected by it. It affects him at an emotional level. It says here that he's deeply moved and troubled when he sees her grief, when he sees the the way that death affects his people, when he sees the mourning that surrounds this whole situation, sees the lack of hope, the lack of faith. It says that he's deeply troubled. He's deeply moved. Right? This is, uh, in some ways, the essence of the incarnation that we celebrated at Christmas. Right, that Jesus meets us in the midst of our broken humanity. He meets us in the midst of our weakness and our tiredness and our grief. And he doesn't just hover above it. He doesn't just float through it. He meets us in the middle of it and he weeps. He weeps with us. He weeps over us. Jesus asked them, uh, where has the body been laid? Where have you, pl- have you placed him? Where have you laid him? And they say, Lord, come and see. You know, it's interesting. Uh, they invite him to come and see. They basically don't say, come and do something about it. Come and raise him. Come and do anything. Just come and check it out. Jesus, we don't think that you have any power over this. Jesus, we don't expect you to do anything about it. Just come to the grave, pay your respects, do your mourning. That there's all, that's all there is to be done. And in the face of that, we get... The shortest verse in the Bible, uh, John eleven thirty five, Jesus wept. Right. If your if your New Year's resolution was some type of Bible memory uh, plan, start with John eleven twenty five. <laughs> Jesus wept. And I think it's easy. Uh, it's a short verse. It's easy for us to to breeze right over it. But really, if you look at this passage, I believe there are two miracles that happen in this passage. Right, it's one thing, and kind of the obvious one is that a man, Jesus, raises another man from the dead. That's, 
clearly that, that's a miracle. But that one kind of hits you in the face. Another miracle is that God weeps. Right? It's a miracle that a man raises another man from the dead. But it's also a miracle that God in Christ weeps. He weeps over human suffering. He weeps over our griefs. Right? Of all of the, the, the theological systems and religious systems in the world, Christianity is unique in giving us a God who weeps, in giving us a God who doesn't just wind the world up like a watch and then set it out to run on its own. This is no uh, abstract philosopher's God who just, the, you know, the unmoved mover of the universe, right? This is a God who so willingly identifies himself in love with his creation, with you and with me, that he actually risks the vulnerability of letting his heart be broken of letting himself weep over what makes us weep, over our suffering and our pain. Right, often we sing the hymn, Amazing Love, how can it be that thou, my God, would die for me? But it's also true and should be maybe sung, of that amazing love, how can it be that thou, my God, would weep for me? That you would weep, God, over my life, over my sin, over my losses, over the broken things that I encounter and that I can't put back together, that you would weep for me. Because a God who cannot weep for you cannot die for you. A God who won't weep for you won't bleed for you. But a God who in compassion looks on you and weeps over what the fall, over what sin has done in our lives, a God who moves towards us in compassionate tears is then able to follow those tears all the way to the cross is able to follow those tears all the way to what can I do to apply a balm, to apply a comfort, to apply a remedy to this. The God who weeps over us is the same God who, motivated by that compassion, goes to the cross. So where is God uh, in our pain? He's seeking us out. He's meeting us in the midst of it. And he's weeping with us in the midst of our heartbreak. But of course, there's more uh, to the story than that. We do need a savior that's full of compassion. We need a savior who knows how to weep, uh, who knows compassion for our losses. But we need more than that. Right, we need more than just compassion. We need a Jesus who has both the compassion uh, for us, but then the power to actually do something about it. Right, and that's what we see here in this story is perfect compassion joined with perfect power. We just sang about it in that song, Come Ye Sinners. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity joined with power. Full of pity and power joined together. That Jesus has the power to save us because he can look on us in compassion, but then also have the power to overcome those obstacles that we can't overcome, to forgive what we can't forgive, to heal what we can't heal, to raise what we can't raise. He has power, real power, to bring new life into our lives. So he goes to the tomb. He asks them to roll away the stone. I love this objection. The people around say, Jesus, listen, he's been in there four days. You don't want to roll away that stone. 
it's, you want to leave that right where it is. The, we know from rabbinical teaching at the time that the, the common Jewish belief about death at the time was that the soul kind of hovered around the body for three days. That for three days after death, the soul stayed in the grave, hovered over the body, but on the fourth day, the smell got bad enough that even the soul left. Uh, that, that all hope was lost. Right? That this body wasn't just kind of almost dead or in a coat. This was dead, dead. And starting to smell. And so Jesus says, no, no, roll away the stone. Roll away the stone. And then, just with the word of his voice, calls into a dark cave, Lazarus, come out. And he does. He comes out. Staggering out, still wrapped in his grave clothes. And the people around him have to, have to unwrap him. Say, yeah, to unbind him, take off the linens, so that he can walk freely in this new life. Jesus uh, commands this man out of death itself with no more than a word. And that is the impression that over and over again we get uh, in the Gospels. That when Jesus speaks, things happen. That there is no power strong enough to withstand and to stand up against the very word of Jesus. That for him to call Lazarus out of the grave is no more difficult than when I call my son to get up from sleep. Son, it's time to get up. Actually, it's probably easier for him. That's a, that, can, that can be a tough road in our house. Lazarus, come out, and out he comes. So on the one hand, uh, this resurrection seems mind-bogglingly easy for Jesus. Lazarus, come out, and he comes out. And in a way, it is. Because of his power over death itself, because of his might, because he created life, Resurrection over death is very, very easy for Jesus. No more than calling someone out of sleep. On the one hand, this resurrection seems to cost Jesus nothing. But he goes a little bit out of his way, says, come out, he comes out, what's the big deal? Why couldn't you have done it sooner, Jesus? But on another level, this resurrection of Jesus, this resurrection of Lazarus, costs Jesus everything. If you read the text, it's obvious that John is trying to draw connections between this resurrection and Jesus' resurrection. Right? He's in a cave. Jesus is in a cave. There's a stone over the, the mouth of the cave. There's a stone rolled away from Jesus' tomb. But there are some differences. Right? Lazarus comes stumbling out of the, the cave still wrapped in his burial dress. Jesus, at the end of John, when, when the witnesses come in and see the empty tomb, the the grave clothes are just empty there on the tomb, right? It's like Jesus uh, came out in a new body, remade completely, never to die, never to perish. Lazarus's resurrection is, is a shadow of Jesus's resurrection, right? It's not the same. Lazarus walks out in his same body. Le Lazarus later on in life would go on to die again, right? Actually, in the early 1900s, they discovered a tomb in Bethany, uh, that had the names Mary and Martha and Lazarus on it, right? We don't know. It could be circumstantial. It could be, you know, different Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. But whether it's that tomb or another one, one day Mary and Martha and Lazarus got laid in a grave someday. Now, those were probably pretty different feeling funerals, right? To, to put somebody in a grave that you had seen him walk out of before. There would have been a certain hope, a certain optimism about going into that grave. 
But still, it's clear that this, this resurrection is a sign. It's not the thing itself. It's a sign pointing to another resurrection. That it's a foreshadowing. It's a trailer of the coming attraction of Jesus' final triumph over death. And his final triumph over death cost him his life. And it's clear in this narrative that Jesus goes to Bethany knowing that it's going to cost him his life. When he's told that, that Lazarus is sick in Bethany and he starts to think about going and he decides that he is going to go, he knows that Judea, this, uh, Bethany is just a suburb of Jerusalem, and he knows that there's people there already who want to kill him. It's so palpable when he decides to go back to Bethany, to go back to this region, that he's heading right into a danger that might kill him. That his disciple Thomas uh, even says in verse 16, Let's, let us also go that we may die with him. So there's an awareness that Jesus, when going to raise Lazarus, is going at the expense of his own life. In the Gospel of John, uh, there is no trial story like we get in the Synoptic Gospels. In this Gospel, Jesus' trial happens immediately after the resurrection of Lazarus. The religious leaders cluster together in verse 45. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do? For this man performs many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. So what they're saying is if he really is a Messiah figure, if people are going to be raised from the dead and following after him, the Roman Empire which has allowed us to kind of function under their control, they're going to come down and they're going to put their boot on our, on our neck. They're going to come down and they're going to take away our land and they're going to take away our temple. We've got to figure out what to do about this Jesus problem. And so one of them, an older man, the high priest, Caiaphas, says to them, verse 49, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Jesus went uh, to Bethany that day to raise Lazarus from the dead, knowing full well that the cost of Lazarus' life was his death. That for, for Lazarus to come out of his tomb, Jesus was going to have to go into his tomb. For Lazarus to taste the sweetness of new life would mean that Jesus had to taste the bitterness of death. And so where is Jesus when you're suffering? Where is Jesus when you're, when you're wondering where he is and you're hurting and you're dealing with those parts of your life you can't put together again? He's seeking you out in love. He's meeting you and he's weeping with you. He has the power to bring new life out of the mess of your life, out of the wreckage and the broken pieces. And he loves you enough to trade his life for yours, to lay down his innocent life for your sinful life. That's the Christian story. That's the story that makes sense of our suffering and all the suffering of this world, is that there is only one who can weep over it, yes, but then who has the power to put it back together again. 
Therefore, we as Christians uh, can have hope in the midst of our suffering. We can know that we're not alone, that we're never, ever alone, that he's with us. We can know that our lives don't end in tragedy or end in death. We can know, we can have the comfort of knowing that we never, ever suffer alone. And there's more than that. It's also meant, this fact that Jesus is full of pity joined with power, resurrection power, has meant that Christians uh, throughout most of our history have not had to live our lives running away from suffering. Right, if you think about our world today, think about life in contemporary America. Most people spend most of their time avoiding suffering, pursuing pleasure, things that feel good, and running away from things that are dangerous, things that might hurt, things that might feel bad. But Christians don't have to be afraid of suffering. Christians don't have to run away from risk and danger and suffering. We can walk towards it because Jesus walked towards it, because Jesus defeated suffering and death. We can walk with confidence towards it. You know, in the second and third centuries, so this is just 100, 200 years after the death of Jesus, 300 years after the death of Jesus, the city of Rome uh, was afflicted by two great plagues that killed off much of its population. And these two plagues started, as plagues uh, did then and largely continue to do, it, it, it started and has, had its worst effects in the back alleys, in the ghettos, in the places where the poor lived, where sanitation in those days wasn't good, where comforts were low, that it was the poor who suffered uh, most acutely. And we know from historical records that everyone who could in Rome got away, got out, got away from those parts of the city especially those with wealth and power. But history also records that it was the early and fledgling Christian church that Christians didn't leave, that Christians stayed there. They stayed with the sick. They stayed with the suffering. They stayed with the afflicted to bandage their wounds, to help them to die in some comfort. The Christians didn't run away. They felt it was their calling to stay and to serve. And they felt that they had the power to do it because the, the fear of death had been taken away from them so they could stay. Over a 1,000 years later, uh, 1,500, 1,600 years later, a missionary, T.W. Tucker, died in 1964. He died. He was a missionary to the Congo. And he was killed in the midst of a Congolese civil war. Uh, the rebels came uh, into the village where he uh, and 60 others uh, served. They bound him and threw him in uh, to a crocodile-infested river where he was killed. Tucker knew uh, that civil war was going on in the Congo before he moved there. He didn't get caught unaware. He, didn't, he, he wasn't there, and then this bad thing started to happen, and he couldn't get a flight out. No, he went in knowing. He went in knowing that this could happen. He went in knowing that he was entering into an unsafe environment. His biography tells the story that he was counting the cost before making this move and accepting this call to the Congo. In a, in a discussion with a friend of his, his friend Morris Plotz, tried to convince him not to go. He said, if you go in, you won't come out. To which Tucker responded, God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me I had to go in. God didn't tell me I had to come out. He only told me that I had to go in. Christian calling 
enables us to go into the hardest places, the most neglected places in our city and in our world. We can go in because one day God will call us out. Right, Lazarus, come out. One day we will hear the voice of Jesus that will call us out of the, of the one power that we don't have power over, death. One day, T.W. Tucker will hear the voice of Jesus say, Tucker, come out. So he could go in. He could go into a place of great risk, great danger, great poverty, great need, great affliction, great suffering, without the guarantee that he would come out because he knew that one day, one day it didn't matter whether he died or lived, whether he died young or retired old, because one day he would hear the voice of Jesus and everything broken would be put back together again. Everything that he lost would be counted not as loss, but as gain because of Jesus. We don't have to run away from suffering. We can go in to places that we're not even sure we can come out of because of the power of Jesus. That's our great hope as individuals. That's our great hope as a church as we move towards the broken places and the broken people of our church and of our city. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we thank you. We thank you that you are full of pity, that you are full of compassion, that even as we sit in this room today, and some of us are in despair, some of us are struggling with doubt or cynicism, some of us are wrestling with anxiety, some of us are mourning those that we've loved, some of us are feeling the sting of difficult relationships. Lord, that you seek us out, that you, in your compassion, weep with us in the things that break our hearts. Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have a compassionate and merciful Savior. And Lord Jesus, we thank you that we have a powerful Savior, that we have a Savior who has triumphed over all of the foes of this life, a Savior who's got power over shame and sin and guilt, the power to heal relationships, to heal bodies, the power to heal our souls, the power to build us up and to help our unbelief, the power ultimately, even over death itself, to call us from death to life. Lord Jesus, help us to come to you, to rest in you, to live in you, to find our life and our power in you, the one who will one day call each and every one of us out of our tombs. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.